Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Thursday, April 7th, 2021. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Meet the Beatles. They are among the ISIS terrorists accused of taking part in the abduction, torture, and murder of hostages, including four Americans in Syria between 2012 and 2015. Wait, those are terrorists. Those aren't the Beatles. Oh, yes, they are, says John Demers of the Department of Justice. Cote and Al-Sheikh were members of the notoriously brutal ISIS hostage-taking cell that became known as the Beatles. They are Ayman Cote and El-Shafi El-Sheikh. And they are the accused terrorists, part of the band that murdered Kayla Mueller, James Foley, Stephen Sotloff, and Peter Kassig. El Sheik's trial continues today in Virginia. The crimes are horrific. The victims were innocent. And when I think about the four Americans, it's, of course, so depressing. And yet, the Beatles? So called by the hostages because these terrorists spoke in English accents. But the Beatles? You know, somewhere, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr are gonna hear about this, and they just have to go, no, why, us? The terrorist who killed Foley talked with a British accent, and I remember at the time he was nicknamed Jihad John, and I later came to think this was because the Beatles theme, John, leader of the Beatles, but no, it was just the Jihad John thing. The hostages called Jihad John George, as in George Harrison the Beatle. The trial continues today, as I said, in Virginia. The terrorist who was called Jihad John, George, he was killed by a drone strike. There's another one of these four in a Turkish prison. Cody pled guilty, which led to the headline, ISIS fighter in overseas Beatles cell pleads guilty to killing Americans and other hostages. Then there was this from today in the Wall Street Journal. Lawyers for Mr. El-Sheikh have argued that when he traveled from Syria to London and joined ISIS, He wasn't a member of the Beatles. I I guess not. I wonder what and how narrow their argument was. Wall Street Journal also said one of the former prisoners who survived to testify at the trial described how the two Beatles he knew as John and Ringo beat him as they tried to film him begging for his release, saying his demeanor wasn't dramatic enough. Prosecutors argue that Ringo is Mr. L. Shake. No, no, Ringo is Ringo Starr. Richard Starsky, you know the guy. Peace and love, peace and love. He's an actual person. He's not a code name. He's not a torturer. Could we just back off on the conflation of the people who've brought only misery to the world with the two people walking the planet who arguably have brought the most joy? Or compromise situation, Nickelback. Let's call the terrorist Nickelback. It is a joke that is terrible and unfair to the back. But I just wanted to save Paul McCartney from this indignity. Or, you know, there are only two terrorists out there now. Wham! We'll call them Wham. Ugh, it's the Beatles. We're stuck calling them the Beatles. 
Rod Stewart has dodged another indignity. On the show today, I spiel about Jen Psaki. She briefs the press every day, representing the figure of the bald eagle, but she is being lured away by the peacock. How NBC is navigating its new status as retirement community for the Biden administration. But first, it is a great day for America. Confirming a black female Supreme Court justice? Yes, that indeed is quite momentous. It's never happened before, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that happens every spring, baseball's opening day. It is, or at least in the half dozen or so parks that aren't rained out, it is. It's finally baseball season, so rejoice or recoil because Craig Calcaterra is here. He's a baseball writer who spent years with NBC's Hardball Talk. He has a new book out, Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. Craig Calcaterra up next. Craig Calcaterra loves baseball. He just hates the owners, the fans, the players, the stadium, the rules, and the broadcast. Okay, that's not entirely fair. He likes some of those, probably not the owners, but he has been, in fact, rethinking fandom. That's the title of this longtime sports writer's book, Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. Craig, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. So this is a subject that I think more but talk less about, I think, than any other. So I'm excited to talk to you. What? Okay, you're a baseball guy primarily, yep. right? Mm -hmm. What are your big problems with the game right now? Uh, everything that doesn't happen on the field and some of the stuff that does happen on the field. No. no. Oh, okay, just that. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, my biggest problem uh, with the game right now is that the people who own the teams and run the game don't seem to care about the game very much and don't have to care about the game very much because the incentive structure that we all accept in sports or expect in sports of we give them our money, we give them our loyalty, we give them our eyeballs, and they put a team on the field that tries to win something eventually. I mean, not everybody's going to win every year, but eventually. Good faith efforts. That's all gone. That basic social mm -hmm. contract between fan and team or fan and league or whatever is gone. Uh, what really bugs me right now, especially in Major League Baseball, but to some extent in all the other sports, is that there is not a huge incentive to win by the ownership class because revenues have become detached from winning. Uh, selling tickets and increasingly even getting TV ratings is not as important to the bottom line of, for these teams and these owners as it used to be, and they don't really then have an incentive to win anything. Did Wrigley care? Did Comiskey care? Did the Yawkeys care? So m much of my much of my listenership might not know those are the old time owners of uh, three famous teams, two in Chicago, one in Boston. But my point is, and I hate to make the always ever thus argument, but I don't know that those, <laughs> especially at the time, I don't know that those owners or any others had reputations for quote unquote caring about the game. I don't think they cared in the sense that we think about caring. I don't think they they loved anything or anyone necessarily the way we would want them to. And frankly, most of those guys you just mentioned were sons of bitches. Yep. <laughs> but the thing is, there was a there was a limiting factor there. Eventually, if they were such sons of bitches that people stopped showing up at the ballpark, they would go bankrupt. 
or they would have to sell the team. And so what you're saying is mm -hmm. their incentives were aligned to winning in a way that the current ownership isn't necessary. Exactly. At some point, they still had to at least if they didn't even win championships, they at least had to put a respectable product on the field that someone would go to the ballpark buy a ticket to see. So a major trend that has happened is the player empowerment movement we're seeing it in the NBA. And a lot of blame gets placed on that. Um, I think some of it clearly unfairly. There's a lot of grousing by middle-aged, past-their-prime fans, maybe mainly white fans at, you know, black players who are uh, enjoying their lives and have many more millions. But is there a downside to it? You know, have we gone past the Rubicon where there has been some effects of the quote-unquote player empowerment movement that make fandom a little less fun? I mean, not for me. I can't speak for other people in this, I think it's just, you know, you like what you like. Um, I, I still think no matter what people say about excesses or maybe they should stick to sports more or whatever. I, I, I want to hear every single athlete be an individual. It doesn't bother me a bit. As long as they show up at game time and play a game and play hard, well, I really don't care. Yeah. Well, that's the part. The player empowerment movement has empowered players to just decide not to play, to force a trade. I mean, we saw James Harden doing that. That's a direct outcome of player empowerment. We saw Kevin Love essentially saying, yeah, I'll play if I could get a minutes guarantee and if uh, I'm in a good position. I mean, Love has played great, so maybe or better than we thought he would, so maybe he gets a little bit excused. But I think there are definitely some downsides in terms of, you know, sucking it up and playing for the team has some has something to be said for it. There's something to be said for it if there's a reciprocal loyalty, though. I mean, for from who? From, from the, the team. team the from the team. For a hundred, I mean, for a hundred years, these guys. Well, I were, don't think. I mean, no, no, the I mean, teams for, have always been bastards, though. <laughs> you have to still play hard for well, them. I mean, you got to play hard when you're on the on the court or when you're on the field or whatever. I think you absolutely have to. And if you don't, you're open for criticism. Like you know, the love situation is the one I was familiar with the most. And you know, come on, get get over yourself. But at the same time, I get it. And for the most part, what people will complain about with players being, uh, you know, too forward or too whatever in that is, I think, no different than the fact that they were chattel for 100 years and, and didn't have any say about where they went or what their circumstances of employment were. And you know what? If you're not – if I'm rooting for – I'm just, you know, out of the blue. If I'm rooting for the Knicks – that's probably a bad choice. But if I'm rooting for the Knicks – and a player on the team is making it harder for the Knicks to win. I'm going to be critical of him, but I'm not going to say, uh, I'm not going to second guess him. I'm not going to question him. If he wants to do what he wants to do, fine. If he's not going to do it in the team context and they want to get rid of him and they can, fine. But, uh, you know, there's no one else looking out for an athlete other than the athlete and his agent. So let him do it in the short period of time they have to make money. Well, Ah, Kevin Love has a $120 million contract, and the contract is for him to pl play basketball, and he's not injured, and he just didn't like the situation with the team, and he didn't think it would help his long-term or even medium-short-term prospects. So he withheld his services, though they couldn't withhold their paycheck. It made the Cleveland Cavaliers a less good, therefore less fun basketball team to watch. I don't know to what extent uh, Kurt Flood's travails inform what Kevin Love was doing. I mean, Kevin Love grew up in much greater privilege than 90% of the country. I, I don't know how the history informs what I would just think is a selfish action that wouldn't have been possible without the rules and the ethos pre-player empowerment. If, yeah, but I'd rather have that level of excess if it's excess. I'd rather have that okay. than, than have somebody like, you know, some guy get his service time manipulated in baseball or whatever. That's, you know... The, the, the price of any amount of liberation is that at one end, somebody's going to take advantage of it. 
Oh, I think of it more like a pendulum. And I don't know that the liberation has gone too far. But if you think of it as a binary liberation or non-liberation, yeah, I'd rather take the liberation too. Sure, sure. No, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and defend love. Come on. Um, There was, you know, as I've been watching sports my whole life, and I ascertain that we are, I think, one year apart in age. Are you on the cusp of your 50th birthday? Am I getting that right? The cusp of my 49th this year, yes. So our whole lives, there have always been arguments about uh, fandom and the compact between the athlete and the fan. And it's striking to me that the terms of those arguments sometimes have made a 180-degree turn. So in the 1980s, there was this big movement to enforce academic standards uh, with the SAT as a proxy in college basketball. And now, and that was seen, plenty of grumbling fans saying, this is kind of ridiculous. They call themselves college students, but they're not even going to class and they're not getting into uh, the college's with any kind of the grades or SAT scores that uh, they should have. And now the the feeling around that has done a 180. And so now not only does no pretty much no one ever complain that uh, NCA players aren't studious enough, college non-players, just general students, are no longer having to take the SAT because it was the SAT that got maligned in that conversation, not the college student or the college student athlete. So my question to you is, you could talk about that specifically, or isn't there something, an always ever thus phenomenon, that we could never really perfect what we think is wrong with sports? Part of being a sports fan is just always having to find something wrong with sports, and that's okay and baked in? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I mean, I don't know anybody who's always satisfied, and I don't trust anybody who's always satisfied, mostly because it always changes. I mean, if if you know somebody who's been a sports fan for 30 years and they've just been a perfectly content peach the entire time, I'm like, are you really paying attention? Because things have changed. Some things are way better. Some things are way worse. Like, if there's anyone out there who who thinks that the ability to watch sports on TV now is somehow worse than it was in 1987? I I really need to talk to that person because I remember being able to see like two games a week and it was stupid. And now it's better. And there are some things that are worse. So I think there's always going to be something to complain be complaining about. And that's good because I, look, I, my past life before I was a sports writer, I was a lawyer. And my my way of dealing with stuff is, you know, you criticize it, you poke at it, you use the Socratic method to find its flaws, and then you get into trying to make something better. I mean, that's what lawyers say they do. Most of the times they make it worse too. But hey, still, that's the idea. And so I think if you're not critical of sports, if you're not critical of really anything in life, you're not going to get improvement in life. So I'm okay with it. And I realize that, like you mentioned, the pendulum, things change. We're mad about something in the 80s. All, all of a sudden, wait, that was a pretty good thing now. That's just life. I think that happens with everything. One thing that you didn't write about in your book that I think is a phenomenon driving a lot of this uh, disquiet is the decoupling of community and team or community and players. The NBA is basically, they say it's a player's league, but the teams the players play on are largely irrelevant. I mean, the way that the players interact with each other on the team, you know, the chemistry of a team or just the competition of a team, that's important. But the fact that that team is in Brooklyn or that team is in Houston. I mean, it used to mean a lot, but now it means almost nothing. And NBA fans follow players, which is smart because if you're 
a fan of James Harden, you get to watch him in all of his landing spots. But if you're a fan of the Houston Rockets, you're mostly disappointed. And it's at a time when the player, player movement is at its maximum. Societal trends about actual movement of citizens, it's less than it's ever been. You know, Tyler Cowen and others have written about it. And I think that's a really important distinction. That fandom used to be about the community of a team, and now it's about a differently defined community, like an online community or a community around a player. And I think that's profound. What do you think? Oh, I agree. I agree. And I I don't touch on that directly in the book, but I do make a, a strong argument in the book about rooting for players. I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about how that community thing, which again is important for fandom as a whole, uh, the community thing has often been leveraged uh, by sports owners and sports leagues and city leaders and mayors and things like that and local business to sort of get more for sports than they really deserve. Um, There's, if you're a player for most of these sports, you didn't get to pick where you played. You don't, pick who drafted you. If if I became a member of the Cleveland Browns because the Cleveland Browns drafted me and I have no right to negotiate with the other 31 teams, uh, am I all of a sudden expected to have community loyalty in a way that uh, goes above and beyond anybody else? Well, yeah, in sports you kind of are, right? Because then if you leave as a free agent, you're disloyal. Or if you say something bad about the city, you're disloyal. Or if you don't live in the city in the offseason, you're going to catch some criticism. I've always found that to be weird. It's, it's very handy and very useful for uh, for sports to be based locally and to have that sense of loyalty. But, uh, you know, on some level, it's artificial, especially as it relates to the athletes. Do you think any other societies do it better? I Well, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by acknowledging that there is probably nothing more corrupt on the planet than European soccer. Um, so I am under no illusions whatsoever that uh, that, that is a, a nice and tidy and happy world. But there is something to be said about how the teams and the clubs, I, and I'm not a huge expert on this. I just got into soccer in the last year or two. Um, there's something to be said about how they really genuinely are tied to a community. You can't just, if you're Manchester United, you can't say, well, I don't like the stadium project as it's going right now. We're going to move to Birmingham. That just doesn't happen there for a bunch of reasons, political, some of them structural and things like that. So you do have some ties to a local area that are a little bit more important. And there is a community and fandom that, that I think is a lot more authentic than we have here. But it's apples and oranges. It just developed differently. Our country's bigger. Our sports landscape is completely different. I don't know that they do it better. They do it different in a way that I have found refreshing in certain respects is about as far as I'll go. What about using colleges as minor league development systems? That seems that's unique to America and has uh, pluses and minuses. Uh, I guess a plus is the NCAA tournament is fun. (laughs) And I guess another plus is it's an avenue to get an education. But a minus is, of course, it needs to be an avenue to get an education. Yeah, I'm a graduate of The Ohio State University. And I still live in the town that Ohio State University lives in. So giant town. Listen to a town. <laughs> Columbus is a town. Come on. <laughs> we got like a million people, but it's a town. Um, and it's a, it's a company town. And that company is Ohio State football for the most part. And I, I just think it's insane the, the way that the large programs and the major programs have, uh, have sort of distorted uh, the the relationship between sports and, and the college. It's completely divorced. It has nothing to do with one another. It is a minor league system that the NFL is very happy to have because it subsidized their player development. Uh, the NBA does it as well, maybe to a lesser extent now than it used to. Um, 
I, I don't like it at all. The, you're right on one thing. Yeah, a lot of these guys are getting educations they wouldn't have gotten. I don't think it's a quid pro quo by any stretch of the imagination. And for as much as I criticize baseball, one thing they do is they'll draft high school players and basically every single high school player gets drafted as part of his contract, even if he's not a really high draft pick, they generally get education covered if they want it. Um, you can go and play, be a minor leaguer. You can flame out after seven years and the Baltimore Orioles or whoever drafted you will still play, pay for four years of college for you. It doesn't have to be done the way it's done with the NFL and college football. If you are a Major League Baseball commissioner or not the current commissioner who only has certain powers, if you're a Kennesaw Mountain Landis powerful commissioner, what rule change or changes would you implement? Well, all the ones that I would change would get me fired immediately because the answer to the owners, but uh, they would all be on the structural side of the game as far as how revenue sharing works and all that. I think there would be a much larger amount of revenue sharing. We would do everything we can to encourage uh, teams to spend more money and, and incentivize that. Right now, it's disincentivized. As far as the game goes, I put a pitch clock on yesterday. Uh, baseball is getting so boring on the field, and it's all because pitchers and batters are taking forever. They don't need to do that. I watch a lot of minor league baseball. They've had a pitch clock for the last several years. It looks like 1980s baseball in the best sense of the term. When the pitcher gets it, he throws it. There's much more action. That's on the field what I'd be doing right now. Mm. Got any other ideas as commissioners of the other sports? Uh, you know, I probably don't know enough about them, to be honest, at that level. <laughs> I, I'm just a common fan when it comes to the other sports. So, I would eliminate the Phoenix Coyotes for one. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just, yeah, again, that's a business side thing, though, just the way. I, I don't know why they're there. I don't know why they're now, what, they're playing in a college place or something? Is that what's going to happen? I, it's, it's, <laughs> no one knows. Maybe they don't even exist. It's embarrassing. Like, what, if, what if the Minnesota Wild just started a rumor that they beat the Coyotes 3-4? Who would know? <laughs> <laughs> they just sort of exist as a theoretical construct, so the, uh, so the, the standings look okay. Yeah, the Phoenix Coyotes are like the dark matter of the NHL, something like that. <laughs> Smart people think it exists, but they can't really f prove it. Craig Calcaterra was a longtime sports writer for NBC Sports. His substack is called Cup of Coffee. It's doing quite well. His new book is Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Jen Psaki, White House spokesperson, is reported to be in negotiations for a new job. Let's hear a reporter at one of her recent press briefings grill her on that job. Jen, given the reports, which have now been confirmed by multiple media outlets, how can you continue to be an effective briefer if you do, in fact, have plans to join a media outlet? Well, I have nothing. The answer to that question about joining a media outlet was by the book. I've checked in with all the ethics and the compliance experts, etc. But what was notable was who was asking the question. Kristen Welker, NBC White House correspondent, presidential debate moderator, and according to Axios, CNN, The Hollywood Reporter, etc., soon to be Saki co-worker. Welker tried again to grill the press secretary on the ethics of Jen Saki defecting to NBC. 
I understand what you're saying, but I guess the question is, how is it ethical to have these conversations with media outlets while you continue to have a job standing behind that podium? Well, there are. Yes, there are no ethical or legal requirements on one of the parties taking part in those talks, but it's not the party paying the salary of Kristen Welker, who, by the way, was asking the right questions and therefore acting professionally and ethically. In fact, it was a combination of ethics, branding, appearance of impropriety that led many NBC News employees to question the judgment of their bosses to take the very people they're supposed to be covering and turn them into colleagues. Excuse me, excuse me, ma'am, ma'am, if I may, question, question, quick question. What did the president know? When did he know it? And can I put you down for potato salad at next month's company picnic? So when I say one day they're covering these people and the next day the people that they're covering, they'll be co-workers, I do mean that in the plural. Not only is White House spokesperson Jen Psaki rumored to be, and in no way denying that she'll be going to NBC, but Simone Sanders, who until recently was the vice president's spokesperson, made a deal to host a show on NBC's Peacock streaming service. That, by the way, is where Saki is said to be landing. Simone Sanders, smart, skilled, but she has definitely capitalized on her time on TV. Here she was a guest on Chris Cuomo's talk show alongside mm, guy who would be a future Trump administration official, Ken Cuccinelli, talking about the horrible... Unite the Right rally that had recently happened in Charlottesville. The first voice you'll hear is Cuccinelli's. The local blogger who got the permit to protest the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue then blew this up. That was an excuse. Look at the and now look at even dead. how they got the permit. And can I finish, Simone? Will you just shut up for a minute and let me finish? Pardon me, sir. You Ken, don't get to tell America. me to shut up on national and, television. And, and, so hold on. You, and so that all <laughs> I'm these sorry. Nas- all Under these no circumstances do you get to speak to me in that matter. You should exhibit some decorum. Ken, stay civil. Hold on, guys. Both of you stop for a second. Simone, Ken, Simone, and under no circumstances. Ken and Simone, hold on a second. You need a reset. You need a reset. Ken. You don't want to use language like that hey, when you're talking I'm to someone. Talking you can me, disagree, but you don't you don't talk hey, like that Chris, on this show. You know better I than that. I keep Ken. getting interrupted. I, I know, but Ken, we don't tell people to shut up on this show. Up. Wow. For my money, Sanders was right to give it to the cooch as good as she got. She held her ground and then she anointed it. The title of her subsequent book, No, You Shut Up. Here's the New York Times description. When a Republican official told her to shut up during a live interview, she parlayed the viral moment into the title of her memoir, No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. She joined the Biden campaign in 2019 as senior advisor acting as a conduit for constituencies, including women, black voters, and Democrats previously loyal to Bernie Sanders. Her fierce advocacy for her candidate extended beyond the airwaves In March 2020, she tackled a protester who rushed the stage during Mr. Biden's speech on Super Tuesday. At the White House, she played a central role in Ms. Harris's brain trust. In an interview over the weekend, Ms. Sanders said she planned to, quote, bring my whole self to this show. That's good. Hate to have half a Simone on the peacock. Warning to would-be tacklers, you will be met with a whole Simone Sanders, not a fraction thereof. But I can't help but thinking of how this new show might play out. And now, for an hour of illuminating discussion and exciting debate, it's the author of No You Shut Up. For a long time, press people, spokespeople, have left the podium for the studio. George Stephanopoulos, former Republican spokespeople, 
Tony Snow and Dana Perino host shows on Fox or hosted shows on Fox. Sometimes they become hosts, sometimes they're just tapped for their knowledge as pundits. And there is, of course, a real benefit to viewers and the public to have a recent insider with smarts and contacts as part of your media organization. But the reporters of NBC are also right to be nervous about this. The pipeline from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to 30 Rock is confusing to viewers. Or actually, it's not very confusing at all. It's quite clarifying. The straight news reporters always say, sometimes with a sigh, yes, some of our primetime hosts have opinions, but we play it straight. Only, it's not just your primetime hosts. It's one thing if Rachel Maddow or Chris Hayes Opinion journalists for outlets like The Nation or Air America take their talents to NBC and host shows that are inflected with their opinions. It's another thing if White House spokespeople go right there to the Peacock Network. They were literally members of the administration weeks ago. NBC's parent has reportedly told the NBC reporters who are upset about this, no, 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 viewers understand opinion. They call it perspective programming. They understand that's separate from news, only I don't think they do. They understand that MSNBC is team blue, and how could you expect them to ignore that NBC is baked right into the definition and name of MSNBC? The bosses are essentially telling their reporters, don't worry, NBC, viewers think of you more like CNN than MSNBC. That's weird, and they don't. It's not that NBC, or it's not just that NBC is tapping people who agree with the Biden administration, or that NBC and MSNBC is hiring people who have insight into the Biden administration. It's that NBC is sort of becoming the Biden administration. This doesn't mean that the coverage can't diverge from what the administration's official stances are or that specific former spokespersons now hired or reportedly soon to be hired won't speak for themselves or stake out positions that differ from their former bosses. It does mean that there are three real cable stations in America. One has for a long time been an adjunct of one of the political parties, and there is mounting evidence that another is positioning itself pretty much as the same thing. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the Just Assistant Producer. Joel Patterson is the Just Senior Producer. Michelle Pesca is Mental Skills Coordinator, not just for Peachfish Productions, but our minor league affiliate, the Staten Island Ferryhawks. The Gist is presented in conjunction with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, depru, duperu, and thanks for listening.